Well, we've reached the finish line of a sermon series once again, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 64. It'll be a moment or two till we read the passage, but you can get it uh, handy. Uh, if you're just joining us, we've been going through a series for the last, I guess, three months or so through uh, some selected passages in the book of Isaiah, uh, trying to grow in our understanding of really the, the whole book, but take it in some manageable portions. And we've entitled this Tuning Our Souls to the Four Songs uh, of the Servant of the Lord in Isaiah. We looked at those. If you look in the back of your worship guide, it tells you where we've uh, been. The last page shows you the series we've been in. So we've We've talked about uh, the servant of the Lord. This is Jesus who's prophesied in the Old Testament in Isaiah some 700 years before he walked on the earth. These descriptions that are given of this servant, that he was spirit-filled, just, empowered, savior, prophet, uh, rejected and chosen, we saw, obedient, attentive, enduring, and in the last couple of weeks that he's the atoning one, that he's the suffering one, and that he's the victorious one. And as we uh, looked at these, uh, sec this section of Scripture, these sections of Scripture, we, we've talked about several times the fact that we're thinking about it in terms of a, a capital S uh, servant of the Lord and a lowercase s servant of the Lord. Uh, and Christ, of course, being that capital S servant of the Lord, the only one that really fulfills all of those things we described. And yet the fact is that the, the Lord, through Christ, either grants us some of those lowercase s servant of the Lord blessings to enjoy as we serve God and our calling in life, generally, broadly, serving the Lord and all the things he's called us to do. Uh, and, of course, he guides us and shows us who, who we should try to be as lowercase s servants of the Lord. So we saw that it's both what the Lord has accomplished for us and what the Lord wants to accomplish in us and through us as, as well. Uh, we've done a deep dive uh, over the, the number of weeks, so we've done three messages on each of the specific passages, so it's kind of been a, a deep dive in that, and of course the danger of that is that we get so much in the trees that we could potentially lose the forest, the overall message of the book of Isaiah. And I want to use a resource today that we've used uh, before. Some of you all are in the love and are helped by the Bible Project videos. Maybe some of you all don't find them as uh, useful. This is about seven or eight minutes, but it's about the last section of Isaiah chapter 40 to chapter 66, which encompasses uh, the, the servant of the Lord passages. And we're going to watch that for a, a moment as kind of the, the introduction to the passage. Then I'll read from Isaiah 64 a bit, and we'll uh, look at what that particular scripture teaches us. But hopefully this will help us to tie a bow on this overall series that we've been doing in Isaiah. Next week, uh, Jason Tucker's going to be uh, preaching uh, for us. I'll be out of pocket as, as, as it stands now, as is planned, but he's going to be preaching for us. And then we'll go in uh, after that to a, a three-week uh, series that we're going to share during the, the time of Advent as well. So uh, let's take a moment and, and watch this, and then we'll read the passage in a moment. So let's watch the Bible Project Isaiah video. Thank you. The book of the 
the book of the prophet Isaiah. In the first video, we explored chapters 1 to 39, which was Isaiah's message of judgment and hope for Jerusalem. He accused Israel's leaders of rebellion against God and said that through Assyria and then Babylon, Israel's kingdom would come crashing down in an act of God's judgment. And so chapter 39 concluded with Isaiah predicting Jerusalem's fall to Babylon in the exile. And a hundred years after Isaiah, it all sadly came to pass. But Isaiah's greater hope was for a new purified Jerusalem where God's kingdom would be restored through the future messianic king and all nations would come together in peace. And so chapters 40 and following explore this great hope. The first main section, chapters 40 to 48, open with an announcement of hope and comfort for Israel. The people are told that the Babylonian exile is over and that Israel's sin has been dealt with and a new era is beginning. So they should all return home to Jerusalem where God himself will bring his kingdom and all nations will see his glory. Now, let's stop for a moment because this opening announcement raises a big question. That is, who is saying all of this? Whose voice are we hearing in these words of hope? The perspective of the prophet in these chapters is that of somebody who's living after the exile, in other words, in the time period described by Ezra and Nehemiah. But Isaiah died 150 years before any of that. So what are we supposed to make of this? Well, there are many who think that it's still Isaiah in his own day speaking, but that he's been prophetically transported, so to speak, 200 years into the future, and that he's speaking to future generations as if the exile was passed. However, the book of Isaiah itself gives us some clues that something else is probably going on. In chapters 8 and 29 and 30, we're told that after Isaiah was rejected by Israel's leaders, that he wrote and sealed up in a scroll all of his messages of judgment and hope, and that he passed it on to his disciples as a witness for days to come. Eventually, Isaiah died, waiting for God to vindicate his words. Now remember, Chapters 1 to 39 were designed to show us that Isaiah's predictions of judgment were fulfilled in the exile. He's a true prophet. And so after exile is over, Isaiah's disciples, who have treasured his words for so long, open up the scroll and begin applying his words of hope to their own day. So on this view, the book of Isaiah consists of that first collection of Isaiah's words, as well as the writings of his prophetic disciples that God uses to extend Isaiah's message of hope to future generations. Whichever view you end up taking, everybody agrees that these chapters are announcing that the future hope has come, that God is fulfilling Isaiah's prophetic promises. And so the prophet hopes that Israel will respond by becoming God's servant. That is, after experiencing God's justice and mercy through history, that they will now begin to share with the nations who God truly is. But that's not what's happening. Israel, instead of bearing witness to the nations, is actually complaining and even accusing God. They say, the Lord doesn't pay attention to our trouble. In fact, he's ignoring our cause. The Babylonian exile, understandably, caused Israel to lose faith in their God. I mean, maybe he's not that powerful. Maybe the gods of Babylon are way greater than our God. And so the rest of these chapters, 41 to 47, are set up like a trial scene. God is responding to these doubts and accusations with the following arguments. He says first that the exile to Babylon was not divine neglect. Rather, it was divinely orchestrated as a judgment for Israel's sin. And second, it was for Israel's sake that God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon so they could come back home fulfilling Isaiah's words. 
So the right conclusion that Israel should draw is that their God is the king of history, not the idols of the nations. In the fall of Babylon and the rise of the Persian king Cyrus, Israel should see God's hand at work and so become his servant, telling the nations who he is. But by the end of the trial, chapter 48, we find that Israel is still as rebellious and hard-hearted as their ancestors. And so God disqualifies them as his servant, but God still is on a mission to bless the nations. And so the prophet says God's going to do a new thing to solve this problem, which moves into the next section, 49 to 55. We're introduced to a figure who's called God's servant, who's going to fulfill God's mission and do what Israel has failed to do. God gives this servant the title Israel and sends this person on a mission to, first of all, restore the people of Israel back to their God, but second, to become God's light to the nations. And we're told that this servant is empowered by God's spirit to announce good news and to bring God's kingdom over all of the nations. It sounds just like the Messianic king from chapters 9 and 11. But then we learn the surprising way of how the servant will bring God's kingdom. He's going to be rejected and beaten and ultimately killed by his own people. In reality, as he's being accused and sentenced to death, he's dying on behalf of the sin of his own people. The prophet says the servant's death is a sacrifice of atonement for the people's evil and rebellion. And then after his death, all of a sudden, the servant is just alive again. And we hear that by his death, he provided a way to make people righteous. That is, to put them in a right relationship with God. And so this section concludes by describing two ways people can respond to the servant. Some will respond with humility and turn from their sins and accept what God's servant did on their behalf. These people are called the servants and also the seed. Remember the holy seed from chapter 6. These are the ones who will experience the blessing of the messianic kingdom. But there are others who are called simply the wicked, and they reject both the servant and his servants, which brings us to the final section of the book, 56 to 66, where the servants inherit God's kingdom. These chapters are beautifully designed as a symmetry that brings together all of the themes of the book. At the very center are three beautiful poems that describe how the spirit-empowered servant is announcing the good news of God's kingdom to the poor, and he reaffirms all of the promises of hope from earlier in the book. The new Jerusalem, inhabited by God's servants, will be the place from which God's justice and mercy and blessing flow out to all the nations of the world. And surrounding these poems are two long prayers of repentance, where the servants confess Israel's sin, and they grieve over all of the evil they see in the world around them. And so they ask God to forgive them and that his kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, on each side of these prayers are collections of more poems that contrast the destiny of the servants with that of the wicked who persecute them. God says he's going to bring his justice on all who pollute his good world with their evil and selfishness and idolatry, and that he's going to remove them from his city forever. But the servants, those who are humble before God and who repent and own their evil, they are forgiven and they will inherit the new Jerusalem, which we discover is an image for an entirely renewed creation where death and suffering are gone forever. And this brings us to the very outer frame of this part of the book. In this renewed world of God's kingdom, people from all nations are invited to come and join the servants of God's covenant family so that everyone can know their creator and redeemer. 
And so the book of Isaiah ends with the very grand vision of the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. Through the suffering servant king, God creates a covenant family of all nations who are awaiting the hope of God's justice in bringing a renewed creation, where God's kingdom finally comes here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the very powerful hope of the book of Isaiah. Well, if those guys would just come up with 28 to 30 minute uh, videos, I'd have a pretty easy job, wouldn't I? Well, let's turn to uh, God's word for a moment, which is one of the passages that's right in the middle of the section described at the end, and that's Isaiah uh, chapter 64, Isaiah 64. And I'll just remind us that uh, really what we're, we talked about last week is a a springboard into the message this week, and that is, of course, through Jesus' atoning work, his suffering to atone, he brings about victory. And in a sense, chap, you know, chapter 60 to 66 of Isaiah is describing what that victory looks like. What does it bring to us? What does the new heavens and the new earth uh, look like as the Lord brings it to us? And 64 is interesting because it's right in the middle, and I think it gives words to maybe how we feel sometimes as we long for, as we live in this already and not yet, and we long for the Lord to do more in our world, to do more in our own lives and call out to him. So we're just going to read this, uh, this one section. I've got a couple other passages from 60 to 66 to highlight today, but this will be our main uh, passage for today. So read along with me silently as I uh, read aloud Isaiah 64, verse 1 through 9. Oh, that you would rend the heavens... And come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, who those who remember you in your, there's page three, remember him in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and we shall be saved. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted gar garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls on your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Let's pray once again. O oh, Father, we thank you so much again today for your word. Thank you for being with us through this whole series in Isaiah and for being with uh, me and others who have uh, sought to proclaim faithfully the message about these servant songs of the Lord. And I pray that you would refresh us today, even with the things that you've been putting on our hearts these last number of months. And 
in particular, Lord, that as we dwell on this passage about the fulfillment and the longing that we have as believers for uh, the fulfilling things of your promises, Lord, that you would meet us, that you would strengthen and encourage us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is interesting to think about the ways that we long. I love this first verse that says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, right? Tear tear them open, like rending a garment of cloth. Tear them open and that you would come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. What a powerful picture, this picture of God working and moving into the world. And we know he is at work. We know he's at work through Christ, through Holy Spirit, who's our comforter and guide in all things, a convictor as well. But, but don't we all, if we've known the Lord for a few minutes or we've known the Lord for a number of years, or frankly, even if we don't know the Lord, if you're here today and you're just trying to understand a bit more about uh, Christianity or about the gospel, uh, most of us have a, a longing for something to change in ourselves, right? We can envision a better version of ourselves, and that's often not who we end up being. Uh, we are sometimes confronted real obviously with that. Other times it's sort of just back in our mind that we wrestle with who we want to be. Uh, sometimes we go directly against the person that we would like to be. It's not just that we fall short. We go in an opposite direction of that. And I don't know about you, but that makes me long for fuller transformation that will come in the new heavens and the new earth. And it makes me thankful for the kingdom of God that's already, I hope, reigning in my life and reigning in your life. And it is bringing that transformation about. But it's bigger than that, isn't it? I mean, every week we, throughout our lives, the years go on, the months go on, and we hear stories in the local news. We hear stories in the national news. Another killing, another abuse, another war, another you know, health tragedy, another whatever. And these things uh, weigh us down and make us long not just for like our personal lives to be transformed, but for the whole thing to be reset and restored. We know it's not, it's not operating the way that it's supposed to. It's pretty clear to us. And we probably have different opinions about what the solutions are to some of those things, for sure, when it comes to politics and worldview perspectives. But we long for things to be different when we read those headlines and when we hear about things uh, happening in our country and in the nations around. So we long for the Lord to rend the heavens and come down and to, to work. And even more than that, I think, again, as we walk with the, the Lord for even just a bit, we, we long for God to revive and revive his people. I won't read it to you for sake of time, but uh, one in our congregation sent me this week a, a little survey, and these, these surveys come out, you know, I guess every five years or you know, two years or whatever, that try to take a look at uh, where, what do a, the average American person think 
And what does the Christian person think? The person that professes not just to be a Christian, but in this case an evangelical Christian. So on paper, a Bible believer. And, and it was uh, a, a couple of the, the statistics were encouraging, but for the most part, the statistics showed that people in the church who in theory are surrendered to this book and believe that flourishing really comes when I live and walk with the Lord tend to think almost the same things about life and about morality and even about the nature of God. One was one of the questions was, basically, does God change? Which is biblically where God is the rock who's unchangeable, immutable. And it was amazing the number of people, like 50% of sort of Bible-believing Christians that thought that God you know, somehow changing, his nature could change. Uh, there were other questions about the Bible. Is the Bible true? And so we built our lives around it, a number of people again. So we, we long to see God rend the heavens and come down into the church collectively and renew us and revive us. So today the main idea, and we've got just a, a few minutes. I've just got uh, one illustration, and then we'll see if we can read a few passages from Isaiah that, that drive this home. The main idea, hopefully, is that we, we see is that when we look beyond the trees to see the force of redemption, we will long for God to rend the heavens and come down. You know, I was thinking about this. Uh, I've got one son that's uh, a distance runner. Uh, he doesn't really run like really long distances, although, you know, in practices and so forth they do. So they'll, <laughs> he'll come home with his buddies. Oh, how was the run at practice today? Oh, it was it was just seven miles. It just ran for seven miles. You know, when I run, and I do run, I like to get exercise and so forth, I max out at a mile and a half. That's about as far as I'm going. That's all I want to go. My body can't take me any further these days, and, and I've never really had interest in, in doing that. And then, you know, then there's a whole other group of people. Maybe you're one of them, or you've got friends or family who run these marathons. You ever think about that? Like, they run 26 miles. And I, I thought about that with this passage. Maybe this would be an illustration to encapsulate all of this. You know, if you're running a marathon, I've never done one, but I'm imagining that this is the way it, it, it goes. Even if you've trained and prepared, when you're on the actual journey, kind of like our journeys through life and longing to see the Lord work, you know, you're, you get going and you're in that first mile and all of a sudden, I, you know, you feel a twinge in your in your hip or in your ankle or in your back or something that you didn't feel before and you know I imagine right away you go I'm only a mile into this thing I got 25 more miles to go I'm about to pull the ripcord I think I'll be I think I'll be done with this this marathon so we can we can kind of come out of the gate in our Christian life and our Christian walk and hit some things that set us back and they they make us long for renewal and strengthening I don't know, but I imagine you, if a person gets to four or five miles, which already seems insane to me, but if you're a marathon runner, you expect that you're able to do this, and you, you get to that point, you, you're probably feeling already in a good bit of pain, and you're like, okay, I've made it this far, but I'm really not even a, a third of the way done with this thing. I've got much more to go, maybe mile 10 or 12, as you go through that marathon journey, you're 
your body's well trained to it. It's equipped, but at that point, you've got to be just starving for resources. And it doesn't matter how many of those little Gatorade packets they squirt into their mouths while they're running by. There's no way you can possibly, in the middle of the run, really replenish the kind of resources that you're demanding of your body. Uh, you, you have to decide probably at that point, I'm going to stick to my race plan. Am I going to vary from it at all? Do I go for it? Do I really try to run the time that I'm hoping to? Mile 18 and 19, you, you're, you're getting way closer to the finish than any of the rest of us can imagine that you would be. But you're still a doggone long way from it, right? Still got seven miles left to go on this thing. And I imagine when you get to that mile 24 or Certainly mile 25, we see that finish line. And, and probably whatever state you're in, you got some kind of boost that's going to carry you on. And I just think about that as we think about God's plan. I don't know if it's helpful to you, but God's plan of redemptive history. We try to look at the forest and also have seen the trees in Isaiah. Uh, the, the sustaining work of the Lord in our lives. And we've got that longing that he would rend and come down and and equip us for the journey. And so I, I don't know today if you're here and you're, you're just getting started on that first mile or two in your walk with the Lord or you're young in life and you feel like you're at a young stage and you've hit the wall on some things spiritually, maybe, maybe stumbled a bit and turned away from the Lord in some ways and need him to, to patch you up to get on to the journey. Uh, what a beautiful reminder of his grace that he forgives us, that he loves us and can sustain us. Maybe you're here and you're kind of in the middle stage of your journey. Uh, you've been investing in other people, hopefully by that point, not just living the Christian life for yourself and maybe getting a little, little drained, a little taxed by doing that. Or you've, you've seen some bumps and bruises of, of life and ups and downs and struggles spiritually or other struggles. And you wonder, you know, can I, can I really make it? Can I keep going? And Perhaps there's some here as well that uh, the, the end of that journey's in sight and you're looking forward uh, to it, but you've still got steps to put in front of you, feet to move to keep on the journey. And the Lord's got purposes for you in that, in that race to continue. And I, I just love this passage from Isaiah where God is, uh, we're calling and praying and pleading that God would uh, come down. We don't have time to look at a bunch of the other passages in this section of Scripture, but boy, I would encourage you to read some of them. Uh, chapter 60 uh, talks about uh, God uh, being a light that shines, and it even talks about the people bringing uh, frankincense, gold and frankincense, to that light that shines, tying together with a season we're about to uh, enter. Several of the other passages speak about God's judgment, but they also speak about tremendous blessing of God's kingdom working. And so what I hope we'll see today is that through Christ and through what we've been looking at the last number of weeks in Isaiah, that we have this servant of the Lord. That's not just a, a, a capital S model for us of how we should live. He is that but that he's fulfilled all these things that we cannot accomplish, and then especially these last couple of weeks, that through his atoning work and through his suffering and through his victory, you and I get to have the promise that we can pray for him to rend the heavens and come down. We, we can see revival happen in our lives in this world. We ought to pray and call out for that. 
And, and none of that we know is going to ultimately be fully fulfilled in this life, but we can look to the promises even of this chapter 64 and know that day is coming. That day when the new heavens and the new earth will be fully established is in the promises of God for you and for me, and we can take encouragement for the journey from it. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you today for your word in Isaiah, and we do thank you that there is this uh, suffering servant and that he invites us and even uh, those from all the nations into the family, the covenant family of God. And we praise you that that covenant family, uh, who we have the privilege of being part of, can look to you in hope. And so I pray this week as we gather together and maybe struggle sometimes to come up with things to be thankful for, that you'd remind us of all the plentiful things of salvation that we can enjoy, as well as the many material things that we enjoy in our lives and in our society today. We praise you for your blessing. We pray that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that you'd work in our lives, you'd work in our church, uh, you'd work to bring about the things of your kingdom more fully, even in our time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.